This is Mate, a podcast about marketing, ads, tech, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist and entrepreneur. Today, I have some very special guests joining us. That's right, plural. I am joined by Joel Gershman and Howard Finger, and they are the authors of a new book called The Mindful Entrepreneur. And in this discussion, we talk about the key pillars that will help you run a better business and live a happier and more fulfilled life. So, let's go talk to them. So, who are you and what do you do? Hi, I'm Joel Gershman. I'm a business coach and author in the field of business growth management and leadership. Hi, and I'm Howard Finger. I'm CEO of VinciWorks and I strive to create the greatest sustainable value. No excuses. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show today. And um, you're joining us because you guys have co-written a book. It's called The Mindful Entrepreneur. So, uh, maybe Joel, tell me what the book is about. Uh, sure. It's, a, it's called The Mindful Entrepreneur, and it charts the true story of how Aria Goldman and I helped Howard um, to move from what was really a, a near business collapse and, and intensely stressful life to a, a growing profitable business and a, and a much deeper sense of personal well-being and fulfillment. The Mindful Entrepreneur is really an interesting kind of business book um, because it's not written in, in the standard kind of format uh, that uh, a lot of business books are written. Generally, that business books will cover uh, kind of really like high-level um, concepts and, and then use some case studies to illustrate that. But this book is actually written in a different way and it follows Howard's story. So, I actually want to start off with uh, a question for, for Howard. Like, you're kind of the protagonist in this book. It's almost like a bit of a storybook about your life. Um, so, tell me about your life and your business before the, start of, before the start of this journey. What we've written in the book and my, as you say, my life or my journey, what we've learned is that it's the archetypal small businessman story and I think that's what comes through from the book and anybody who is a small business owner and I wouldn't say anybody but many people who are small business owners have experienced the stress the pain the frustration um, the disappointment the struggle the lack of cash the intensity of trying to run and build your own business and uh, I think that the fact that the book works is, as you said before, was because we wrote it, uh, warts and all, as they say, um, as mm -hmm. in effect, we almost wrote it. And there's a backstory, which we have time, I'd love to tell you is why we wrote the book the way we wrote the book. But the essence of the book was to really explain and to describe how I was struggling to try and build a business and survive in a business and intertwined with that was, of course, the, the pressures and the stress of maintaining relationships, of keeping your home life stable, um, and the success of the business, for example, impacts on your ability to pay the school fees. So the, the interaction and how deeply entwined your personal life is, family life is, personal relationships are with the success of the business, and I'd suggest vice versa. It's much easier to be 
confident and strive forward and focused at work if your home life is in order and happy and balanced. And it's much easier to be happy and connected and and, um, available at home if the business is working. And I think it's in the telling of of the story, the actual day-to-day, almost day-to-day activity, it reveals that um, those stresses and the requirement for that balance. I was listening to a um, interview that you guys did with uh, Neil Mitchell on uh, 3AW Radio, and um, there was a quote. Joel actually said, uh, "The state of your business and the state of your mind are deeply intertwined." And I thought that was just like such a really interesting, um, but also like kind of obvious in a way uh, statement. Tell me about that statement. Like, what what does that mean to you? Yeah, look, just building on what Howard was saying just a few moments ago. Um, the reality is that we are humans with multiple aspects going on in our lives. There's our business, there's our family life, there's our internal sense of, you know, stress and well-being. And the reality is that they all impact each other. They're integrated. Right? So as I was saying, if you, if you run a successful business and things are working well and you're not caught up in your business all day, every day, well, then you have time for other things in your life and you're not feeling stressed. Whereas if your business is choking you and you don't have time to spend with your family or time to, I don't know, get do some exercise or just breathe, then it affects your well-being. And then that has, a, again, an a, a effect back on your business. When you're feeling stressed, when you're feeling choked, it's hard to be a good business person. It's hard to be focused on your business. So there's this really critical interaction there. If you focus just on business strategy, but not on the other part of your life, you may not achieve the goals you want to achieve. I think, in, well, I'd like to say is that an example of that is, is I didn't realize this until a lot later, but my staff used to refer to me behind my back as Hurricane Howard. And they'd say that if Howard was arriving, right, I'd fly into the office in London or wherever else, they'd say, oh, the hurricane's arriving, you know, batten down, um, be careful. Because I was so stressed out that I would, you know, lose it. I would get angry. I would, And I wasn't able to empower and communicate, uh, power my staff. Um, they felt equally stressed by my stress levels. It undermined their confidence in the business because clearly I wasn't confident and I wasn't actually effective in my communication. And so it's only, and I, I didn't even notice it. Subsequently, they actually told me that's what they called me. So I realized things were improving. It's an interesting moment when your staff tell you all the horrible things they're saying behind your back. Exactly. Which says that I've obviously reached a new level right Mm -hmm. (laughs) of availability of communication um and they were saying that you know you weren't approachable you thought you were you said you were but no one could get close to you because you were clearly so stressed and we were sensitive to that so we didn't want to to cause you more grief so we didn't tell you the bad stuff and that's a perfect example if once i was able to to reduce that stress in the business my communication now that in my experience, and I've been very, very fortunate with my family, my wife, Andrea, and my kids, Sophie and Zoe, are amazing people. But I know that I was not as available. I was equally at stress when I got home at the end of the day. 
And they said to me, they tell me now that, that I was not as approachable and they had to walk on eggshells, as we say, around me in case I lost it. Yeah, you're not you're not living your best self, right? In in um in business as a as a boss and a business owner, but also in family life with friends and you know your kids and wife and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it, it, it and to kind of back to that quote that I mentioned from uh, Joel a little earlier, the intertwinement between both of these kind of areas of your life, um, one impacts the other, and and uh, they really you know if they're both spiraling out of control, then um then they're both, you know, affecting each other in that way. So, it's, it's interesting to really set the scene from, from that point. And, and I think a lot of business owners, particularly in Australia, um, have elements of that kind of feeling, uh, that, that overwhelmment, um, that stress. Maybe not, you know, Hurricane Howard, but, um, but they're, they're kind of feeling like there's just too much going on. They don't know how to manage it. They're worried about, you know, cash flow, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, we know that small business employs the majority of people in Australia. I think it's, you know, this, the SMB sector employs about 80% of the Australian workforce. Uh, so, this is a big issue that a lot of business owners are facing. So, like, what did you do to get out of this funk? Um, and then, you know, that kind of paints the picture of what this book is about because the book is about the story of how you, you know, went from this Hurricane Howard to um, a successful business owner and a fulfilled person. Right. And let, let me just say that um, I like to say that I am not the mindful entrepreneur, but I'm in the process, <laughs> as I think we all should be, of trying to become a mindful entrepreneur. And um, yes, my business is, is, I would say, much, much more successful now. Um, and I am um, feeling a lot better in terms of my own internal well-being. And it's an ongoing process to continue to try and improve both of those aspects or all aspects of my life. I think that the book opens, and I think best to say it is, with waking up at three o'clock in the morning and worrying about how I was going to pay the school fees and whether I was going to have to pull the kids out of school out of their schools which they loved and the embarrassment when my wife went into the local grocery store and and the credit cards none of the credit cards worked it, it was that level where nothing was working the the business actually was was okay but like with many small businesses and is that cash flow immediately seemed to be the problem there was never enough money right and i spent my life every day just putting out fires. And I didn't feel, and I think that's when, when um, Joel came into, into my office one day and, and was really looking for a, a desk. Uh, he was moving offices and needed somewhere to work and asked whether he could uh, have a space in, in my office. And I remember at that moment when he came, I didn't know what he wanted and we, we, we knew each other, we were friends. And he said, I wonder if you can help me. And I remember my stomach falling because I thought, oh God, don't ask me for a loan. Um, and he said, you know, I needed somewhere to, sp- to stay, but also could you help me because I want to scale up my business using internet technologies and I know that you know about that stuff. And that was the beginning of the relationship. And what we did was we did a sort of a barter arrangement whereby I said to him, you have the desk, don't ch- pay me anything, but in exchange, put me through your coaching process. And that way I'll know whether your coaching process is any good or not. And I can try <laughs> and tell you whether... You know, I can see any ways of applying technologies to scale it up because scaling up any consulting business, right, is obviously very difficult. And that's where it began. And and I think the breakthrough was very, very quick because I think what Joel said to me right at the beginning, and we, we, there's a was in the first hour we started to talk, was where's the pain? 
Where's the immediate pain? There's a whole process I want to take you through, but there's no point in us focusing on vision and mission or any of these other, or even growth, if we don't isolate the current pain and deal with the urgent problem. And I said, well, the urgent problem is cash flow. And he said, fine, let's deal with that. And in the process of doing that, he asked me, what's your system for collecting receivables, for collecting debt or unpaid invoices or chasing up on invoices? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, what's your process and your system? I said, well, when they don't pay, I call them. He said, well, who do you call first? And you call all of them or does anybody else call all, all, any of them? And I, I didn't really understand what he was talking about until he said, okay, let's tell me what is the process you go through to collect. And I realized I didn't have one. Mm. And that was a, such a aha moment because he said, okay, let's create one. And it took us 20 minutes right, as to what and how would we follow up on which invoices first, who would do what, would we send an email, would we make a phone call, would it be the sales guy or would it be the, the bookkeeper or would it be me? And we put that process in place and basically I said to my bookkeeper, right, look, this is what the process is. And she said, oh, that's a good idea. And it was like, I felt such an idiot. <laughs> and within a week, she'd brought in, I think it was 80,000 pounds. And that suddenly turned things around immediately. They didn't solve the business. It didn't do everything, but it took that massive pressure, a big part of that massive pressure right off me. And I realized it was so simple. And then that was when I was hooked. And from then on, it was the process of, of running through, and Joel can tell it much better, that process of implementing systemization into the business, which all large organizations do, but we as small businesses don't recognize the value and so we don't do it. We think, oh, that's only for big companies, but it's not. And that's what changed things principally for me. So, systemization and building processes and procedures is one of the key elements to, to this book. And Joel, I wanted to ask, you know, as a, as a business coach, um, you know, you identify that that was one of the, the, the key missing parts, I guess, from, from his business. But, like, why is that such an important part to business in general? Um, look- I think it's a, a particularly important issue um, for small business owners because what we often find is, just like in Howard's situation, the problem is that many business owners find that their businesses are largely dependent on them, right? They're doing everything, organizing the billing, they're, they're, they're doing the delivery, they're involved in the marketing side of things, they're, they're doing everything, everything's dependent on them. And there's no time to focus on building the business or on, on other parts of their life. And through systemizing the business, which means making it, putting in place processes to help it run smoothly and efficiently, it enables them to pull away from some of the day-to-day -day work so they can think about focusing on, on growth, the next stage of their business, but also on other aspects of their life. Um, you may have heard me talk about the classic example of franchise businesses, right? Franchise, why do franchise businesses like McDonald's work so successfully? You know, the average McDonald's makes something like $2.3 million in revenue, no matter where you put it in the world on average and, and no matter who runs it. Why? One of the reasons is because they've got step-by-step -step systems and processes for literally everything from you know, the bookkeeping to the recruiting to the training to how to flip the burgers to how to do their marketing. And that's why they can run smoothly and efficiently with, you know, a 19-year-old manager. 
Um, and when small businesses bring that level of systemization to their small businesses, then they can get things working smoothly and efficiently, which frees them up to focus on other aspects of their life. And that, that's that, and that's pretty much what Howard experienced. Yeah, I've heard um, you guys use the terminology "breaking free from your business," and and kind of it's almost like the difference between working on your business and working in your business. You know, you, you're kind of too deep in it. A lot of business owners to sometimes be able to t- take a higher perspective, look at it, and and look at the bigger, broader strategic challenges because you're the one chasing the invoices, for example. Um, and as a business owner, if you've got a payroll department or an accountant or something, then that's probably not something that you should personally be doing. Uh, and there's countless other examples and, and you know, McDonald's and franchising is, is a really great way to illustrate that. One of the kind of analogies that you guys use in the book or that you've used in explaining this is the difference between a business and uh, a job. So, Howard, I just wanted to ask you kind of what, what, what that means to you. <laughs> Look, I mean, any of us, as we call ourselves, let's call ourselves business owners or entrepreneurs. Okay, we have to be mad to do to try and set up your own business because yeah, we're crazy, <laughs> crazy, crazy. Because uh, if you have a job, you don't really have to worry about whether you're going to get paid at the end of the month. Of course, you have to do the job you're given. Um, that's the agreement. But so long as you do the job, and let's take you know, let's not consider redundancies and those sort of things which happen and, and very unfortunate but generally so long as you do your job you know at the end of the month you're going to get paid and if I know I'm going to get that amount of money then as long as I am budgeting it correctly I can live a relatively stress-free life now all, all those things are subject to how much you earn and how happy you are in the job and all those other things but at the very very basic level I know I'm going to get paid and whereas a business owner we don't and if the business doesn't generate enough income, generally everybody else gets paid, but we're the last ones to. The difference is, and so why did we go? Why do we set up our own businesses? And there's there's many reasons, but for most of us, for most of other business people I've spoken to, and I know for myself, I was made redundant. Um, I was a senior vice president at a, a large global publishing company, and I was made redundant. And I decided I never want to be made redundant again. And the only way I could ensure that was to be the boss. And so number one is I wanted to to be independent. I wanted to grow something and um, appreciate and, and the, the the excitement and have a sense of control over over my destiny. I also wanted to create my a lifestyle that I wanted to live, and I wanted to have the freedom to go into work or not go into work, not to have to ask someone if I could take a holiday or not take a holiday. And I think a lot of us, of our entrepreneurs, they're the core things. I want to grow something, I want to be independent, and I want to have freedom. Now, of course, I also want to generate money to live the lifestyle that I choose to live. And that's why we do it. Now, the problem is, is that for many of us, when the business is struggling, we lose all of those things. So we don't feel like we're building anything because as we said, all we're doing is putting out fires. We're not generating enough money to live the lifestyle we choose. We have no freedom because we can never leave job, the leave the office because there's always more to do and I'm doing everything. Right? And I'm certainly not independent <laughs> because I can't, as Joel said to me, if you if you don't, 
um, if the business can't run without you, you don't have a business. You have a job with overheads. So you have the worst of both things. I'm working for someone and I'm responsible for paying all the bills. And it doesn't get worse than that. And that's how I believe a large number of SME, small business owners like myself, live day to day. And so we, the whole purpose of us setting ourselves up and taking the risk of being independent business owners are lost. And I think that's the, that's the core driver for, for trying to make things work and, and implementing systems that give you that freedom and that lifestyle that you choose. Can I just jump in for a second? And I say, I think, you know, you know we've received some really heartening feedback about the book. And one of the, one of the things that many business owners have said to us was that Howard's story really resonates with us because it's also our story. Like Howard said at the beginning, what Howard experienced there is endemic. It's, it's the archetype of what so many business owners experience in their businesses. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's really resonated for people. The idea of implementing you know, systems and processes, as well as some of the other strategies we recommend, is essential for, for getting out of that and breaking free of your business, as we said. Uh, Adam, I, I'd like to say that also is that, please, let's not get too focused exclusively on the systems. They are absolutely critical. And that was the first thing that made me recognize that things could improve. But that's not the only part of, of what um, Joel applies in his, pro, in his coaching process and what is and are critical to, to business success. Yeah, and nice segue. I appreciate that. That was gonna. <laughs> that's where I was about to take us to in 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 the next kind of uh, section. So that's almost like there was three pillars to the book, right? Systemization is one. Uh, another is growth, and then the third is um, is mindfulness. So perhaps let's just tackle growth um, um, really quickly because I think people understand what you know, growing a business is about. But maybe I should ask. Uh, and then we can move on to mindfulness because I think that's a really interesting one to to delve into. But just while we're on the topic of growth, like what framework uh, have have you guys developed to to grow um, business that you know might be different to what people see in other business books, or you know, kind of what's the pillar of um, the mindful entrepreneur's growth uh, framework? So I mean, there's so much to talk about when when you discuss a concept like growth. Um, the first point I'll make is one that, you know, I think you, you probably would find in other business books out there, and that's just the distinction between the, the growth strategy and the implementation of specific tactics to make that strategy come to life. And one of the first things I did with Howard is take him through a process of thinking through his growth strategy. In other words, asking questions like, who is his target market? Which kinds of customers do you want to focus on? And while this is something that you would find in other business books, what I find is that most business owners haven't actually thought about that question in a serious way. In other words, when I ask the question, you know, who are your customers? Who's your target market? The first answer is, well, anyone who comes to me. And my initial response is, well, okay, sure, you might not turn people away, but it's important to have identified a specific target market with specific characteristics, demographic characteristics, um, industry characteristics. And when you do that, 
you can really hone in on that target market and find them and service them much more effectively. Whereas when you say that your target, you know, your customers are really anyone who might come to you, it's very hard to work out how to target those people. I mean, how do you target anyone or everyone? Where do you even begin? Whereas if you say, for example, my target market are, you know, lawyers, uh, law firms with, um, you know, X number of cust- X number of um, employees, well, suddenly that narrows it down and you can start asking the question, okay, well, how do I find those types of law firms? Where do they hang out? It's a much easier question to ask. And as a result, it's the very first step, getting your strategy right. Once you've got your strategy right, then you can implement a range of what you might call tactics to bring that strategy to life. And this, again, there's so much to talk about. I'll give you one example. People are talking these days about a concept called content marketing. Uh, In the past, um, people would try and sell you their wares with a, a sales pitch. The problem with sales pitches, while they still have their place, is that they're essentially self-serving, right? I'm coming to tell you how good I am and therefore why you should accept my services or my products. But most people see through that and therefore there's a bit of a change, a revolution, if you like, going on in the marketing space, which is, which is called content marketing. And content marketing is all about giving people valuable helpful, interesting content to help their lives and giving it often for free to people. And so one of the things that Howard did in in his approach is he started running these workshops for people where he actually gave them helpful, informative, valuable advice on the whole field of risk management and compliance. And when people saw that he was giving this helpful advice, it started to build trust And at that point, it becomes so much easier to then sell your wares once you've already demonstrated your expertise through delivering that type of content. And there are so many ways to do it, you know, through writing blogs, you know, podcasts like this are a great example of content marketing. Um, You know, he wrote a a big, an e-book and put it out there. Um, All of those things contribute to building that kind of trust and demonstrating expertise. And it's something that small business owners are starting to do, but many of them are not familiar with this sort of approach and and don't know where to begin. And yet I'd say it's a really powerful strategy. How would you you agree with me? Yeah, I wrote a blog recently, which is The Death of the Salesman and Welcome Content Marketing, because the, the internet has changed everything. It's shifted the power of the sale from the salesman to the buyer. It used to be that if I wanted to buy a product, I needed a salesman to come and tell me what the product did and why their product was better than other products. I don't need a salesman anymore to do that. I can go online and do my own comparison. I I, I can go and and check out um, hotels.com or booking.com that will give me every single hotel in the region and every detail around that hotel and tell me why I should pick one particular hotel or one particular product over another product. So the whole role of the salesman has has dissipated. And that means that all the best one can expect is that when the buyer gets to the point of making a decision that you are at the table, that he has been aware of you, that you have established some, as Joel says, some trust, 
So if I'm sending out really high quality, and it's expensive sometimes, but high quality information that helps him do that comparison, honestly, doesn't sell my product, just enables him to make the decision he wants, he needs to make, then when he gets to that point of him making the decision, hopefully I'm in the in the game and I have the opportunity, at which point he may contact me and say, okay, I've looked at these three products. Now tell me why I should buy yours as opposed to the others, or it may be a price negotiation or whatever. But we don't, we have to constantly be feeding the market with valuable content that enables the buyer at the point of his decision to recognize us as a as an opportunity to, to for his solution. Yeah, and, and look, that reminds me a lot of um, what Seth Godin has been talking about for a few years now. You know, he's a, a great um, author and he talks about building trust. I think a lot of business owners think that cash flow is the most valuable currency in business, um, but it's not. It's trust. Uh, if you can generate trust, then you can leverage that into, into other things. Totally. Because I, I think one of the other um, great insights in terms of growth that was really important for me was when Joel asked me, which are my most profitable clients? Mm. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, these guys spend the most money with us. He said, no, that's not what I meant. Which is the most profitable? I think it's very unusual to, for, for us as SMEs to, to step back and look at who we're serving and what we're serving them with, which products, and determine which actually generates the most profit because that will generate cash flow right and they say that we say that revenue is the answer to every problem well it sort of is and isn't so long as there's enough margin in it to help Mm. you grow your business and invest in marketing invest in other stuff and and i think that stepping back and looking at what is most profitable that give gave me the next step which is really difficult for for i think for me anyway and i think for many other businessmen we talked to today is to Find the confidence to say no to a prospect. When someone comes and says, I'd like to buy your product, to be willing to say, thank you, really appreciate it, but actually, I'm not that you'd necessarily say it to them, but no, I'm not going to take that client on because actually they're not profitable. Don't want your money. I don't want your money, yeah, because actually your money is going to distract me. It's not going to give me a profit, right? It's going to absorb a lot of my resources and instead of t- working with you, if I looked at these other people who are interested and focused on them and targeted them, they're going to bring in the sort of revenue that really is going to give me some profit, some margin to be able to invest in people or resources or, or growth. Um, and we often get caught up in serving clients that actually are not good for the business. And it's very mm-hmm. difficult to say no when there's a potential check on the table. Yeah. And, and you know, the, you have to kind of be honest with yourself and have, have some really, like, difficult kind of self-reflection and, and maybe some difficult conversations to be able to do that. Um, and that's actually kind of a nice segue to the, to the other third pillar of this book, which is mindfulness. And I wanted to touch on this because, you know, mindfulness is pretty hot, a hot word right now. It's, you know, quite popular in the press and there's a lot of kind of mindfulness books and meditation and all that kind of stuff out there. I know that you're not specifically talking about meditation in the terms of um, mindfulness in the, in the book here. We should have got- Because there's a third author, um, a third co-author to this book as well, um, Aria. The, the mindfulness portion, I think, is almost um, Aria's domain. But 
maybe Howard, from your perspective, um, it might be good if you could tell the the kind of story or what it means in in the context of the book uh, and what it's enabled you to do within your business. Thank you, Adam. I said first of all, yeah, I really need to to acknowledge Aria Goldman because he is a core underlying part of the the whole approach that we take, and and that's worked. I I, I think. You can put in place as many systems and processes and content marketing as you like, and shit still hits the fan. Excuse my French, right? <laughs> it yeah. doesn't matter. You know, things just come from left field, right? So the global financial crisis, I wasn't responsible for the global financial crisis, but it came and hit me. And often things happen that we can't control and that we're not responsible for that knock us off our track and that uh, can be really debilitating. And the key from my perspective in terms of, of what we mean by mindfulness is the ability to deal with those sorts of issues. Now, they come down to very small issues to much bigger issues like the global financial crisis, but you know it may simply be um, the failure for a supplier to deliver part of a product that you need to to meet a contract and you're relying on that guy and he let you down now those lots of those um, events happen and how do you find the internal resilience to keep going and not just to lose it and give up right and how do you so number one is is resilience number two is how can you look at for example, the global financial crisis, and look for the opportunity that is available for you in that disaster. And it's a really interesting approach where um, you say, well, okay, so the global financial crisis happens. How do I use this? What's the, what's the opportunity? What's the, for me, in this disaster? And from, for example, in my business, it was recognizing the value of customer service. I, the global financial crisis happened to us and our law firms were our core client. And literally from the day that, that um, Lehman Brothers crashed in October 2008, all new business stopped. I had about six or seven contracts ready to sign that month and they all phoned up and said, sorry, Howard, no budget, we're not going ahead. And literally overnight, I had no new revenue being generated. And so the question was then, what's my opportunity now? And the opportunity was to look at the renewal business that I had. Was I going to re-sign the existing business I had? And if I could re-sign the renewals, if I could get renewals coming in, then I would at least be able to survive. And so I focused on speaking to the clients and saying, look, we've got this financial crisis. I know you're in trouble and I'm here to help you. And this is what do you need now? How can I support you in the best way through this next period of time, right, which is uncertainty and 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 budget freezes etc cetera, etc cetera. and it meant they said fine look don't bother with the new features but can you just make sure you do this we need to update keep the courses updated because the training updated because of the compliance issues and that conversation comes back to what you said before re-established and reinforced the trust that they had in me that I, and their business that we were going to be there for them right and actually it distinguished us from other suppliers who kept trying to sell Firm said, 
why are they keep knocking on the door? They're driving me nuts. We don't have budget. They don't believe me we don't have budget. And so there's an opportunity in every disaster. And at the same time, it's at that moment when those disasters happen, when things don't go as you plan, the mindfulness to step back and look at what was my responsibility. Now, okay, I didn't create the global financial crisis, but what had I done wrong in the past to make the global financial crisis impact me in such a significant way? And how could I, you know, they say, if you keep doing the same thing over and again, expect a different outcome, that's insanity. Mm-hmm. We do that to small businesses all the time, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the ability uh, from a mindfulness perspective, and that's how we use the term very broadly, to stop, to step away, look at what you've been doing, look at your responsibility, determine and declare and make clear that you're not going to do it the same way again and how you're going to do it differently and then apply it. And when you can do those three things, you get the resilience, you you see the opportunities and you get to, to not repeat the same mistakes you've made over and over again. And that's the sort of mindfulness I think we're talking about. Yeah, I love that. That's a it's a great way to kind of reshift your perspective on on you know as a business owner, disasters always happen, so uh, that's inevitable. But to kind of reshift and reframe problems as opportunities, it's uh it, it's a great way to uh, I guess also not just run a better business, but also have a more positive outlook on life. So right. I love that, Adam. Just I just want to say because there's an underlying thing that Joel that we also deal with that Joel deals with, which I think is absolutely essential and area. They both come from different aspects of it. One comes from the business process and one comes from the from the, the, the personal, right? But it's about core purpose. It's about recognizing as an individual what drives me, what are my values, what do I really want, right? What what holds me back? What's my, my childhood story that stops me being? And most of us have stories like I'm not good enough or I'm a failure, which we learned when we were eight years old and we didn't get picked for the soccer team or the football team at school. And we've carried that childhood story, which holds us back today in building, you know, a million pound, millions of pound business. And I still revert to that little child at time thinking that, and I have to recognize when I do that and stop forward and so recognizing what is my core purpose why am i here what do i stand for what the values that i stand for doing that whole values process in the business what is the business about what does it stand for right is it in alignment with who i am and what i'm doing and are my actions within the business and are the actions of the business in alignment with our vision and and philosophy and and values and and i think that's another piece of the book which is essential um, to recognize that Mm -hmm. So, I wanted to just move on a little bit to um, an analysis of being an author. Like, so, firstly, congratulations to uh, to you guys. It's a massive feat. Uh, what Thank I you. wanted to, <laughs> what I wanted to firstly touch on is, I alluded to this earlier. The book is actually packaged in almost like a quote unquote based on a true story format, um, rather than looking at business concepts in isolation and using individual case studies to to illustrate them. You follow Howard's journey, you know, and it's almost written like a fiction book in a way. Is there a reason for that, and and kind of why? Why did you why did you write the book that way? Well, when we decided to write the book, we were talking about actually growing my own coaching practice. And Howard asked me the question, you know, um, how are you going to grow? And how do other, you know, business gurus out there become well-known and famous, etc.? And I said, look, often they engage in a particular form of content marketing, in particular writing a book 
and becoming known as a, an authority as a result of that book. And he said to me, well, why don't you do it? And I said, well, I'd love to do it, but what would I write about? How, well, how would I do it? And he said, well, how do, we, how do other successful business authors do it? And I said, you know what? Some of the most successful books out there are ones that tell a story that's engaging people. It's not just theoretical content. It tells a story. It takes people on a journey. He said, so why don't you do that? And I said, well, I don't know what I'd write about. And he said, just write about the, you know, the archetypal business owner. And so I began writing about it, but I kept on checking back with Howard to say, well, how did you experience this issue? And how did this work for you? And he kept on describing it. And I, I put that into the book. And eventually he turns around and says, you know, Joel, are you writing a story or are you actually writing my story? And we realized that I had actually been writing Howard's true mm-hmm. story. And eventually he agreed that we could call it his story. Um, and we've found, as I mentioned earlier, that that's really resonated with people because it's a true story. How did you want to add to that? Yeah, well, I think there's a piece you've missed, Joel, which is when I said to him, what are coaches, um, how do they distinguish themselves? He said, write a book. I said, fine. I said, what sort of, and he, he has stuff to write. Obviously, the whole systems and processes that he designed could form the book. And I said, well, he said, what sort of book should I write? And I said, well, what ones work? And he said, the stories. So he said, oh, well, how do I write a story? I said, I don't know. So, of course, what we do today, whenever we don't have an answer to anything, is we Googled it and we wrote, how do you write a story? Uh, and up came um, Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell revealed a structure called the hero's journey. And that structure for a story is applicable from all of the great myths in the world through to the Bible, the story of Moses, for example, through to Star Wars, Karate Kid, every major Hollywood adventure story is all based on the same structure where there's someone lost in the desert, they get beaten up, the guru comes and offers them training, they refuse the training, they get beaten up again, they then go into training, they then have the big fight and they win the fight only to realize that that fight is not the really big fight and now they're going to have to save the world and go and and do the big fight. And that's the same story. And you think about it in every major adventure story, it's the same structure. And there are 12 stages to that story. So we said, Joel, here's the the structure. Now go to write to it. And he said, okay, fine. But what's the example of a businessman being lost in the desert? And I said, well, that's easy. Waking up at three o'clock in the morning, worrying about paying the bills. And mm-hmm. that's when Joel kept coming back to the next stage and saying, look, I've put the theory in, but what's the equivalent of the story? And as we started to apply actual scenarios to the structure of the story, we st- it started to become more and more and more my story. And then what we did, we sat back and said, well, hang on a minute, let's look at my story against the, the, the hero's journey. And it was one of those do-do-do-do moments, right? It was just weird. It just fitted exactly. And so that's when Joel said to me, well, look, it seems I'm writing your story. Is that okay? What I think <laughs> is really interesting is, is that that story continued as we were writing the book. Of course, I continued to be receive coaching. I continued to grow to grow the business as we were writing the book. And we were writing the book as it was happening, and as it is happening now, and I don't know whether – I think I won the first fight. The business is, is in a completely different place now. 
Um, I'm going to the States on Monday to, to try and do a deal to close another large business as, a, an, as an acquisition. We're in a completely different place. And I personally am way more <laughs> happy, fulfilled and, and um, than I ever have been in my life. But have I come to the final battle yet? Yeah, well, that was what I was going to ask. Uh, the, the hero's journey is <laughs> is a bit of a pedestal, right, that you're kind exactly. of leading up to. So, I'm, I'm excited to see where that goes. Me too. The other thing I wanted to ask um, was just a bit about the structure of business books. It, there seems to be a common trend, actually, um, with business books having this kind of very uh, familiar format. It's like, make more money, work less. And, uh, and be happier. There's kind of like the three pillars uh, that, that everyone tries to hook onto, you know, Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week. And mm-hmm. is there a framework that you follow when you're writing a business book that you followed in, in that regard as well? Or um, like, why does every business book turn out that way? I think there are many business books that do that. There are, there are many that don't as well. But, but I think that if you think about it, those, those are the holy grails for people, for business owners. Right? What's, what's really important to them at the end of the day on the one hand, they need a level of financial freedom in their life to be able to live the kind of lifestyle they want. That's, that's fundamental, right? And if you write a business book and you're not targeting that, um, you're probably missing something. But on the other hand, we, business owners also know it's not enough to just have some money coming in. You need the time to be able to spend on other aspects of your life. Um, we recognize that it's not only about the business, and, and that's where that, that whole concept of freedom comes in. And then there's the last component, which is, is happiness and fulfillment and well-being. And I think business owners are increasingly recognizing as well that if you don't have that, as we said before, your state of mind affects the state of your business and the state of your business affects your state of mind. So those are the three holy grails that make for a, a successful, happy life. And I think if you miss one of those pieces – you may not be able to achieve the kinds of goals you really want. Within the book, we talk about this and, and, and we refer to Viktor Frankl and his philosophies mm-hmm. and actually in the simple terms refer to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes. And I think that's exactly what we're talking about here actually in a very simply is that you've got your, at your lowest level, you've got security and a roof over your head and you know, you've got to put food on the table and shoes on your kids' feet. And if you don't have the income to pay for the basic requirements in your life of security and shelter and food, then you're never going to be happy. But once you have that, right, more money actually doesn't make you happier. Now, you get the instant gratification from spending or buying another something, but it doesn't last, right? Once I bought my first car and I had that excitement – I go and buy the second car, which I don't have, by the way, but if I go and buy the second car, uh, at that moment of buying it, there's some sort of excitement and sense of self-gratification. But when they're they're sitting outside the the house and they're both sitting there, I don't feel happier because I've got two cars. And so eventually, going up the, the hierarchy of needs, you have social needs. So if I don't have a community, if I don't have friends, if I don't have relationships, right, then I'm not happy. But once I have a stable community or a family or and relationships and that need is satisfied, then I look for the next thing, right, which really is about meaning and purpose. And what we're seeing today is that the whole world, oh, I wish it was the whole world, particularly in Australia, 
there are very few of us today, unfortunately there are still some, but there are very few of us today who cannot afford to put a roof over our head and pay for food. And so we've risen up the hierarchy of needs to the point now where the amount of money we earn doesn't necessarily, and this has been proven by, um, uh, Kahneman did a great survey right on this, where he showed that anybody, the people, the difference between people who are earning more than 50,000 and more than 100,000 or 90,000, they weren't more happy. So the difference in the money didn't make them more happy. What they need is meaning and purpose. And that's the, the advance of society and humanity today is that, that we're looking at for that sort of meaning and purpose in our lives to give us that deep sense of well-being and value. Um, and so everybody's driven to that once you get the first two pieces in place. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that, Howard. I think maybe that, uh, just that cliffhanger right there, is uh, exactly the battle uh, that the hero is uh, embarking on at the moment, that yep. endeavour for self-actualization, purpose, and meaning. So, um Nice point to, to wind up on. Guys, where can people find the book? All good bookstores in uh, in Australia, but of course they can also find it on Amazon. And for a, a very short period of time, the ebook is at 99 cents. So if you want it, grab it. Um, it's not going to stay that way for long. The other thing to, to mention as well is that we are, have a, an offer on at the moment for what is our online growth system coaching program where you can jump in for, for free for seven days and grab a whole lot of resources and videos that help you apply the exact methodologies that Howard applied in his business. And I invite people to, to go to uh, mindfulentrepreneur.co.co and check out those resources. It's, they're worthwhile. Great. Well, thank you both for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. No problems. Thanks for listening to Mate. Just a little fun fact. The book, uh, The Mindful Entrepreneur, is an Australian production. So, please support the guys. Um, You can buy the book. Head to mindfulentrepreneur.co. And if you'd like a free trial of the Growth System Coaching Program that we spoke about in today's episode, which is the exact methodology that Howard used to save and grow his business, there is a link to it in the show notes of today's episode. Um, Just head to matepodcast.com. In fact, um, I'll I'll create a direct link that you can use to get to their page at matepodcast.com slash mindful. Today's episode was edited by Josh Armour from ArmorPod Productions. The Mate logo was created by Courtney Carmen, and the music is by Nine Inch Nails used under a Creative Commons license. Mate Podcast was made with love and chocolate licorice bullets, my favourite, in my hometown Melbourne, Australia. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and this was a Jaffrey product. Bye for now. If anyone wants to send me some chocolate licorice bullets, please uh, just send me an email and uh, I'll give you an address to send all your fan mail to. As if anyone's going to send me licorice bullets. That'd be cool if they did. You should do it. You should do it.